Hello and welcome to the Outside and Active podcast. My name's Dom and I'll be playing host to conversations tailored for those who love the outdoors. Thank you for joining me on this adventure where I speak to a whole host of interesting guests with inspiring stories. Before I chat about today's guest, I want to say thank you to those who have been supporting the podcast over the past few months and welcome to those who are listening for maybe the first time. If you want to forward this podcast on to someone who you think would enjoy it just as much as you, then please do so. Let's grow this outside and active community. And another thing that really positively impacts us is leaving a review, whether it's on YouTube and leaving a comment and subscribing, whether it's on Apple Podcasts and you leave a hopefully five-star review and a comment. It's great to see feedback and all so it just has a great impact on the podcast. So if you feel like you'd like to do that, then please do. But let's chat about this week's podcast guest. And this week we are welcoming the amazing and inspirational Darren Edwards. Darren is a record-breaking disabled adventurer, author and motivational speaker. Darren's life was drastically altered in the summer of 2016 when a near-fatal accident left him paralysed from the chest down. But refusing to let this heartbreaking injury really alter his life, he fought back with grit and determination to achieve things previously thought impossible for someone suffering with a spinal cord injury. Darren's exploits since that life-changing injury have seen him lead a team of wounded and injured war veterans kayaking from Land's End to John O'Groats, which is the first time that anyone's ever done that. And he's also been brave enough to take on and complete the seven marathons in seven days in seven continents World Marathon Challenge. And he became the first person to complete that who is disabled. In addition to these mental and physical challenges, Darren has also raised over £200,000 for charity and is an incredibly inspirational and educational, motivational speaker. And on this episode of the podcast, we have a lovely chat with Darren about that injury that ultimately set him on the path that he finds himself today, as well as the challenges that he's taken on the Land's End to John O'Groats kayak and ultimately the world marathon challenge that he's recently completed we really go into that and chat about some of the struggles but also some of the high points of that challenge as well but just before we jump into the episode and the chat with darren want to say a thank you to this week's episode sponsor goat drinks now this drink is the energy drink for people who don't drink energy drinks and that might sound weird but their philosophy is all about creating a fun and functional drink which everybody can feel a part of their tasty drinks are gluten-free vegan friendly and have nothing artificial in them they've also just released their sugar-free goat which is naturally caffeinated sugar-free and zero calorie and if you think energy drinks aren't for you then give goat a go you might just be surprised and you can check out their range of functional drinks now by heading to their website goatdrinks.co.uk and you can check them out whilst you're listening to this episode of the outside and active podcast with darren edwards it's weird coming into a room where we're right next to an exhibition hall where you've just been speaking. Super quiet. And it, now it's super quiet and there's a little echo, which is quite nice, but it's a big room. Yeah. Hello, how are you doing? Good, man. Yeah, very good. Thank you for coming on the Outside and Active podcast. It's Pleasure. great to have you on here. Um, how was speaking at the show? Yeah, good. The show this year is so busy. I know. Honestly, um, there's probably, what, 200 people in the audience and then you've got... I don't know how many just walking yeah. around. It's incredible. Yesterday was awesome as well. Like today has been awesome. It's just been a weekend full of people in a room that all love being yeah. outdoors. Yeah, you got that mutual connection kind of thing. Exactly. Um, well, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Uh, there is something that we do on every podcast and it begins with me passing on a piece of advice from someone who's been on the podcast before. Cool. And the person who's passing on this piece of advice, I usually don't tell people who they're leaving it for because I want it to be as objective as possible yeah. and, and, and leave advice in that way. But um, the person who was on the podcast who we just finished recording with, Ray Mears, uh, awesome. yeah, and he said, well, I, I want to know a bit about the person so I can give them advice. And I kind of told them a bit about, a, bit about you. And his piece of advice is... When you choose a buoyancy aid, get one that is really buoyant. <laughs> and that was his piece of advice to pass along. That is sound advice because I'm someone that probably needs that. I spend most of my time upside down in a kayak. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's the piece of advice. Awesome. And, then, and then the other question Thanks, that we Ray. also... Th- thank you, Ray. Um, that we also ask everyone is, what do you love about being outside and active? Oh, that's a question to that's me. That's a question. I thought that was like you asking Ray. <laughs> what do I like about being outside and active? For me, without being too kind of like overly profound about it, um, it's really helped me to channel um, 
my emotional healing process. So obviously when, when I had my climbing accident, I, I was probably most scared about the fact that I would lose adventure as part of my life. I didn't know what having a spinal cord injury would be like. Um, but one thing that I, I just, I didn't want to lose it was that sense of adventure and that sense of kind of finding purpose in the outdoors. So that has actually really helped me. And it's been like proving that you can still be outside, be active, um, regardless of injury, disability, whatever it is you face. I'm really excited to, t- to, to go on and continue and touch on your, your mental strength and, uh, and chat about that. But give me a bit of context about you growing up uh, as a kid. Did you like being outside? Were you sporty? This is inter- so I grew up in East London. So I didn't used to sound anything like I sound now. I was proper like, how did, how did I used to talk? Like the R's were was like Dowen, like that East End right. kind of twang. Yeah. My dad's a proper Cockney. Um, so I don't think I really knew what a hill or a mountain was. And then all of a sudden we moved to somewhere called Shropshire. And, right. and I'm like, like what, why are we moving? <laughs> what is this grass? As like, a, as like a, you know, a young kid being uprooted from the only thing you've ever known, which is like an urban city environment, East London, pretty, you know, tragic really. Um, and then we were moved to this place called Shrewsbury and all of a sudden I'm surrounded by hills and like North Wales is an hour away. And it, it was a massive like shift change in my life because I was like, I want to do that. You know? So all of a sudden I think had my life stayed in East London, I'd be a very different person. It's interesting. Um, you embraced, you, you fully embraced mm. the outdoors. It was like, Oh, not, not, Oh, what is this? Mm, I don't like it. I'm not going to engage with it. It was the, this is something brand new that I've not really known of before or considered. Yeah, like, I'm going to throw myself into it. was into like it. the allure of the unknown. Mm. And like it only took standing at the top of one hill to look down and be like, this is pretty cool. And then to see someone climbing and be like, that's pretty cool. So how did that start to uh, extrapolate itself? Did you start to take on more adventures? Did you have so, kind of ideas of what you wanted to do? When we moved schools, um, obviously I had to like make a new network of friends and this was, it sounds so funny like to say it now, but this was in the early days of, you remember when Bear Grylls first came out and he was doing like Man, man well, versus Wild. Born Survivor, Man oh, versus Wild. Yeah. And he started doing like the episodes in Scotland, in Iceland and all of that. And one of the new friends that I made called Matt was like, hey, you need to come around and watch a DVD of this guy because it's amazing. So I went around to his house, watched it, and he was like, should we go off and do something? So we literally went off into the middle of like Shropshire Hills, um, and we went and made our own little like A-frame shelter and like went into survival, like, you know, yeah. we're kids basically. Yeah. But it, it started that, you know, it's funny how you can start small and you start almost stupidly small, um, sleeping out under like a really bad, like Ray Mears would be appalled at what we built. <laughs> um, but it was that first taste of that. And then there's a rock climbing club that I joined and a mountaineering club that I joined. And it was like these small steps towards this person that then had a huge sense of identity within mountaineering and climbing and it was a massive part of my life and for me you know in 2018 I was going to fly out to the Himalayas to attempt to climb Cho, Cho Yu right 8,000 8, meter peak wow. um so everything was kind of headed in that direction and that was like my the goal the overall yeah, goal yeah, yeah my sense of identity and purpose in life was to like continue to to push myself um and then life kind of went well are you quite instinctive you act on a gut feeling yeah yeah so anything that you kind of I've been saying this today with the people that I've been chatting to that adventurers and when we chat to runners and ultra runners when they have a challenge or a race or uh, a climb something that they want to do it's like an itch in the in the back of their head that they go oh that's that's just extrapolating that idea keeps keeps coming back. I'm gonna go for that like you just can't shake it yeah for sure yeah for sure and I think with in a mountaineering sense it is quite um, easy to look at progression because you look at taller you look at tougher and taller and tougher. And then when you do the taller and tougher, you realize that you're actually more capable than you thought. And that a lot of my limits and our limits are often the mental kind of ceiling that we put on ourselves. Um, but yeah, that was all kind of like thrown proper up in the air by what happened. Yeah. And, and uh, I'll come to that in a second, but really interested as well to know about the social uh, element of you know, what you're doing and what you were doing um, when you're finding these adventures and finding the outdoors. Is it something you wanted to do on your own? Is it something you're doing with friends? I was always with friends. Yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? Like being here today, you're surrounded by hundreds of people that are very similar mindset. Yeah. So, you know, the friends I've made through mountaineering, we had that mutual connection, but also a mutual personality style. Um, I'd gone through the selection and training process to join the Special Forces Reserve so you're kind of meeting like-minded people there that that didn't want to just do the easy 
you know, you could, you could join any regiment. So why would you want to join this one, which puts you through added pain and attrition, but you do it because you want to see if you're possible, you see if it's capable for you, but also you then meet these people that kind of have got that similar mindset. And it was very similar, similar to that mountaineering community as well. I think that's a very shared ethos there. So everybody here today, mm. you know, you know that you could just strike up a conversation. Absolutely. Obviously, you fancy going on an adventure. Commonality there. Like, yeah, go on then. Absolutely. And the reason I ask about friendship is that it's a big part of the story that uh, it, that took place in 2016. Mm. And, and I wanted to, you would, I mean, I want you to say it in your words. And I've listened to you speak at previous shows that you've been speaking out of us. And it's, ex- it's an extremely, it's an incredible story. And, um, 2016 was a big moment in your life yeah. and you were climbing with a friend mm. and uh, an unfortunate accident took place that changed your life. Mm. Yeah. 6th of August, 2016. Um, kind of a day like any, any other, like just a standard weekend, Saturday, good weather, let's go climbing. Um, and my best friend, Matt, who's in the Navy, was back from Portsmouth and I was like, let's get in the car, let's go. Um, and like I said, we're on the doorstep at Snowdonia. Yeah but there's a rock face called world's end about 45 minutes from me. There's a limestone rock face, probably 150 foot tall. Um, and we spent the majority of the day kind of crisscrossing, climbing different, you know, grades of routes. And there was like one, it was tight. It was, you know, it's textbook kind of like when an accident's going to happen, when there's time for one more. And it's funny that if you didn't take that one more option, life would have probably gone on a very different direction. But we did that one last route to the top, topped out, and it was only once I was at the top, you know, and I'd led, um, and I was looking down at Matt, who was on this six foot wide ledge, you know, 30 foot below. And I just went to say something down to him and put weight through my left leg. And as I put weight through my left leg, the section of rock I was stood on, probably the size of this table, you know, four foot by two foot, mm. um, gave way un- underneath my foot, went, cracked, dropped off the rock face, and I went with it. Um, and before I knew it, you know, I was falling through the air, and I could see where I was going. I could see where the bottom was. And it was an awful long way. And between that and me was this one ledge. So if I hit that ledge and stayed there, I could potentially survive. And I did. And I tumbled and Matt sprinted and rugby tackled me as I was about to slip off. So in that moment, undoubtedly saved my life. But yeah, I knew I was pretty badly injured. I was conscious for the whole thing. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You think you you would... And I, the, the crazy thing is that as I finished and I was safe at the top, I, I first thing I did was take my helmet off, put it down next to me because I was I was going to be up there for a little bit, rigging up um, the ropes to bring him up to me. So I didn't even have a helmet on. And it was only three or four days later in intensive care, you know, high on morphine that I just went to sort of touch the back of my head. And there was a line up the back of my skull. Oh, wow. So as I'd fallen, I had you know, graze the rock face. So you, you move that body position an inch one way or centimetres one way. That would have been a completely different scenario. Um, but yeah, so I, had a, so I didn't know it at the time, but I was paralysed from the chest down. Um, spinal injury, severed my spinal cord. And, and that day, like you say, really started this, this completely unexpected, we'll call it an adventure because it, it has been, um, but, a t- but a tough one to start. Yeah, I mean, because again, you listening to you talk, you say that you know when you eventually have conversations. I mean, there's a there's a time period of when you're recovering, but when you have these conversations with doctors and they say, and the people that are working on you, and they say, look, there's a chance that you're not going to be able to live in the same way that you did anymore. And I think you said something around, I've seen people be told that before. I'm going to, I'm going to be, you know, in your mental strength again, you said about it and we'll talk about it. I'll be able to, I'll be able to do that. And, and that wasn't going to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. I was, like you said, I was shown a scan. I was sat down six weeks after my accident. I was in, I was in bed. I was still like coming out of intensive care. Um, hadn't left a bed in six weeks, you know, lying flat on my back, shown the scans and the, the scan. Now I look back at it was quite literally black and white, but also metaphorically, because you could see the, 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 the spine. Yeah. You could see how I'd landed. It had snapped the spine in two without being too graphic. And there was no connection between spinal cord here and spinal cord here. So the, the doctor is saying, look, the spinal cord is the, is the holy grail. You do not want to touch it kind of thing. Um, and you did. Hence, there is no chance of you. But like you said, 
I left that meeting and I was like, if I work hard enough, I will bloody do this kind of thing. Um, so I kind of like applied that mental strength and like determination to it. But, you know, as the weeks rolled on and as my rehab rolled on, no pun intended, in a wheelchair, <laughs> um, you know, nothing was changing. And I had to come to terms with the fact that that this was going to be, this was going to be it. And life was going to look a little bit different, but life doesn't have to be worse. That's kind of like how I was thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and absolutely. I'm going to talk about that, but the, those stereotypical stages of grief of, uh, not accepting it, but Mm. then, uh, frustration, Mm. anger, sadness, I imagine crept in during the, you know, yeah, you're, sure. you're talking about weeks in between, which I completely appreciate, but you know, there's, there's, you go through those feelings before eventually the acceptance stage hits mm. in. I say acceptance, I mean acceptance of the uh, physical ability rather than the being able to stop you from doing yeah, what you sure, want to be doing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're all, we're all human. Um, we all go through that kind of like change curve at different speeds. Um, but for me, there were days where I was, frustrated and angry, slightly in denial. Like that, that, like I said, the, my reaction to what he said was flat out denial. I was like, he's got it wrong. Whereas like, I've been told by a medical professional 20 years, this is the case. Um, but yeah, but it takes a while. And, and you, I think you do loops of the same circuit of that anger, denial, acceptance, frustration, anger, denial, acceptance. Um, and it took a while to kind of get to the point where I was looking at what I wanted my life to be like. You know, because on one hand, you're being told by people um, not only that you'll never walk again, but quite literally, you won't be able to do this, you won't be able to do that. You know, life needs to be now lived in these kind of quite strict parameters and quite safe parameters. Um, so I remember asking my, one of my physios, "Do you think I could learn to kayak?" You know, like I've got no core muscles, and I've got no leg function, and they were like, "Maybe look at wheelchair tennis, maybe look at wheelchair basketball." And I was like, "Yeah, but that's that's not me. That's." One of them's indoors and the other one's in a court, you know, just hitting a ball backwards forwards. And I know that people love tennis and I love watching tennis, but it's not how I would choose to channel my rehab. So I bought a kayak whilst I was still in hospital. I was going to that was going to be my question. Yeah. There's not a long time period between, are you not out of hospital yet no, before you've made this? So four, I, I, yeah. I was in rehab for five, four months in, I was like, look, I need, I need to leave for a day. And I kind of like did it under a shroud of secrecy. I was like, look, I'll be in good hands. Matt's going to come pick me up. I'm not going to do anything stupid, I promise. And they were like, okay, like good behavior kind of thing. So, And then me and Matt drove up to Manchester Canoe and Kayak Store, two hours away, went in, had my hospital wristband on my arm, went up to the desk and I was like, I'd like to buy a kayak. And the guy was like, sorry, what? Because yeah, he, he, he could sense that this was a bit of an unusual customer. And I was like, I want to buy a kayak. I never kayaked in my life, ever. Um, and I spent, I think, about a £1,000. So pretty much everything I'd saved from eating hospital food for like four months on a kayak, a buoyancy aid, a paddle, you know, anything that would go with it, accessory. I was like accessory out, all the gear, no idea. And I rocked back up to hospital like triumphant. And the same physio said to go on then, what was the big, what did you do yesterday? <laughs> and I remember just getting my phone out of the back of my wheelchair, loading up a picture of me kind of like sat next to it, like quite triumphantly. And I just turned it to her <laughs> and she just sort of like took a, took a gulp and was like, please tell me that's not yours. And I was like, mm-hmm. and I was so proud. I was so like proud of myself for, because it was not just a financial commitment. It was yeah. like a physical and emotional. This is what I'm going to do. There's stepping out of your comfort zone and there's some, there might be someone who's never kayaked before and goes and does that. Yeah, I'm going to go and buy a kayak today. Four months post uh, a life-changing injury, not even fully out of hospital yet. That's a whole different level of, of stepping out of a comfort zone and, and just going, right, no, I am going to do this. This is going to be something that I'm going to, I'm going to go for and I'm not going to let what I've been told for the last four months to find, like you said about the tennis, mm. like, no, that's not me mm. going out and doing this weird thing and buying a kayak is me. Mm. I mean, yeah, like, <laughs> like I was 26. So I knew like mathematically, I was like, if I take good care of myself, I maybe have like another 50, 60 years. So I've got all of my years ahead of me. Now, do I want to live those years in some sort of reduced role? No. Do I want to get back to who I was? Yeah. Can this experience make me stronger mentally? Even like, 
admittedly, I'll never be physically what I was. Um, but mentally, I can still be stronger. And that's the case for all of us when we go through stuff in our lives. Even if physically something changes and we're not quite what we were, that doesn't mean to say that that mental strength can't like over, you know, overshadow that or whatever. Um, so yeah. Uh, and then you didn't just stop, you didn't just go and kayak, you know, just for, for pleasure. You wanted to see how far you could take it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was the whole for me. The, the kayak was not just the vehicle to get back out on an adventure with my friends by my side, because that was the whole concept. Was like, look, me, Matt, me, Harry, me, and whoever could get into kayaks. We drift off. The wheelchair would kind of disappear into the distance, and we just go off on a, an adventure. So what's changed? How has life really changed? It, in my mind, not much. So on one kind of avenue, I was like, right, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this proper. So Paralympics, you know, that that is the goal. So for three, three and a half years, I trained my backside off to start getting quicker, 200 meter sprint kind of distance. Um, and I got to within seconds of, you know, being at qualification time for Tokyo 2020. So I was like four years after my injury, to represent GB at the Paralympics, I was like, that is the turnaround that I want. Obviously, adventure stuff was on the side of that, but kind of my job became, if you said to me, like, what's your job? I'd be like, I'm an athlete, which was laughable because at school I was so average at sport. (laughs) Um, But I missed out. You know, I missed out on the Paralympics through, you know, a series of things, injury. You know, when you you have that injury, you can't train to your full potential, you can't race to your full potential. So the Paralympics didn't work out. And I was like, right, well, what do I want to do in 12 months time when the Paralympics were on TV, do I want to be sat at home feeling sorry for myself, yeah. licking my wounds and kind of like, you know, being in that kind of mental woe is me zone or do I want to use all that hard work and effort and kayaking and do something with it? And that's where the whole Land's End to John O'Groats. Yeah. I mean, that thing, that's yeah, incredible because yeah. you led a team Land's End to John O'Groats. I mean, what route are you taking there? So, so we took um, from, from Land's End, you know, starting in Cornwall, you know, Atlantic Ocean, technically, and then we went up the Bristol Channel. So we were on the coast. This was coastal. Um, that first section was mad. The first 350 miles of like, well, it's called Shipwreck Coast for a reason. Yeah, that's you know, exactly what you want to be starting proper, off in. Yeah. You know, and the Bristol Channel is the second biggest tidal range in the world. So we did that. I'm, I'm abbreviating here, but we, you know, that, yeah. that was part of the route. Then up the River Severn. And then once we were back out of the River Severn and the canal networks at Liverpool, on the coast, Irish Sea, North Sea, into John O'Groats, you know, and, and I pitched this to four guys that each had a life-changing injury. So four guys I'd met through one of the military charities. And I was like, look, in 12 months time, I want to do this. I want you to do it with me. And I pitched it to them with the distance, which was about a thousand well, miles. Uh, right. How long I thought it would take about a month um, that we'd raise a hundred grand for charity. And that was about it. And they all were like, yeah, okay, go on then. Love that. And we just had this mindset of, adapt, improvise, overcome. So I had a spinal injury. Johnny had a brain bleed. Army officer on a treadmill one day had a brain bleed, had a stroke and was oh. paralyzed down the left side of his body. And it took, took him seven years to learn to walk. Wow. You know, let alone kayak from... Uh, he was r- just on a treadmill? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was an ultra marathon runner, you know, multiple marathon, you know, accolades to him and was on a treadmill doing a warm down brain bleed. Um, so there was him, Luke, who was in Afghanistan, stood on an ID, lost a chunk of his lower right leg. Um, ben, who was shot, I think, eight times uh, on an operation, saved his own life. That badass. Didn't need anybody to save him. Save his own life. You'd be telling everyone that. Yeah, 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 yeah. He does. Yeah, he, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like the trump card. Um, but that was the, you know, so there you have five people with life-changing injuries that went through that moment where they could have given up and said life is never going to be the same. Or you pick yourself back up and you find direction and purpose in a new way. So loads of people said to us, look, no offence, we love what you're trying to set out to do here, but you, you, you and you and you are not experienced enough. You're not at that standard you need to be. And in particular, people would kind of be like, Darren, no offence, but you know, you've got a high-level spinal injury. This is never going to work. And our response was always like, we've been through worse. Yeah. We'll work it out and we'll make it happen. So... And, and, and you did? We did. And yeah, did. we did. I mean, did you enjoy it? Y- yes. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can look back now and enjoy yeah, it. It was probably time, difficult at the time. At the time, like the first day, we were like getting out on the support boat 
and we were going to stay five kilometers offshore. So we were going to try and stay clear of the of the cliffs. So the idea was stay five k out shore in deep water. If anything goes wrong, you've not got the added risk of being washed up onto rocks. So all good. But as we were getting out on the support boat that first day, the waves were hitting. People were seasick. People were anxious, nervous, nauseous, and there was this whole. I think you could look at everybody on that boat, and there was a look of like, "What are we about to attempt?" And there were moments where, you know, you you, you couldn't have invented it because you had like waves picking up behind you, and you're getting driven forward, and you see the speedo at your footplate going up to like twenty miles an hour, and you feel this like real adrenaline rush, and it was amazing dolphin swimming next to you and you're like you could not make this any better mm. if you were if you were writing it but then on the flip side of that there were moments of pure fear and like are we going to make this out so there was one day where we were up northwest scotland um and we were trying to cross from mainland to the isle of Arran, and weather forecast looked okay but changeable and things change quick mm. we're 15 kilometers into a 30k crossing Wind picks up, waves pick up, and the support boat captain is like, lads, we're, we're calling it. Like, get back on, we'll drop a GPS point, we'll start here tomorrow. So we load back onto the support boat, and by the time we've done that, the support boat is getting smashed around. Yeah. It's a rib. It's not, it's, you know, not huge. And then about 20 minutes later, the support boat captain looks at me, and I'm sat next to him, and he's like, Daz, I'm, this is 50-50. So when your support boat captain wow. looks at you with no exaggeration or added dramatics and just says this is 50 50 where the we're getting flipped and i was looking around myself and i'm like trapped in this kind of there's, there's a boat here there's a kayak there there's paddles here i was like if this boat flips I, I you know yeah and i said it to him and he was like don't worry i'll come back for you so so well, that, that's a really intense situation to so be by in. the time an hour later we'd battled i say we he had battled us back to a port everybody was emotionally like just and you could see it. People were drained, not physically, but just that pure tension for what was a two-hour battle back. And so, you've already come from Cornwall all the way. You're up yeah, in yeah, Scotland yeah. So we at this like, point. Uh, what were we in? We were like 20 days in at this point. Um, so there were days like that, but there were days you just couldn't have. Couldn't Experiences that you never would have been able to even think oh, of. No. And, and No, and it, had you told me five years earlier, there's that guy in a hospital bed wondering what life was going to look like being told, you know, don't do this, don't do that, be safe, kind of, you know, wrap yourself in cotton wool. And the guy that really wanted to rebel against that idea, but didn't know if his, like, visions for the future were just pure fantasy and would never happen, I would have, like, I think I would have cried with pure yeah. happiness had you told me what was to come. You would be able to take on those adventures. And a lot of yeah. it is, and you said it's down to... Uh, not letting your disability define you yeah. as well. I mean, what are some other examples of adventures that, you th- that were the, the sort of the pipe dreams, not necessarily big adventures, but like were you able to then uh, find ways to, to climb or take on different things that maybe you hadn't considered, but now that you're in this world and you're, you're able to see that there's a lot more that you're actually able to do? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it's funny how some of these connections that you make with people – one thing leads to another and you, you end up somewhere. So in four weeks time, I set off with two others with spinal injuries. We're going to attempt to become the first disabled team to cross Europe's largest ice cap. So it's going to take us about two weeks. This is going to be over crevasses and, and snow and ice. And when we were doing a training trip a couple of months ago, we did it on a glacier in Iceland to see if we could, to see if I could sit ski across that kind of like, you know, challenging terrain, see if they could ski. So they've got spinal injuries, but they've both recovered to the extent where they can walk with impairments, admittedly. Um, And I find myself seven years, no, six years after my accident, handling a rope again for the first time. And I'm tying into a harness and I've got climbing gear hanging off my harness. And it was crazy that six years later, I'd found a way back to... To, to that same dude. Were you happy? Were you nervous? Did it? Was it a weird feeling? It was weird because the guy handed me the rope. So Waldo Etherington, one of like the best, you know, rope safety experts, is him. There's Aldo Kane, the kind of you know, on a on a on a level, and he kind of like was showing us a few bits in terms of crevasse rescue and 
how we would rig up as a team and work as a team on the ice. And he gave me a rope and went, just tie into your harness, mate. And it's funny that six years after I'd last touched a rope and a harness, the last harness I had was cut off me by the Bounty Rescue team. He just chucked me the rope. I put a figure of eight in, tied it into the harness. And it was only once I did it and I was waiting for further instruction that I looked down and I was like, oh, damn. Like, I just did that without Muscle thinking. memory. But also I, I forgot the significance of what I was doing as I was doing it. It was only in the seconds after that I looked down and I was like, this is massive. Yeah. This is, you know, this is me, but a better version of me because I'm a mentally stronger version of the guy I used to be. So, Yeah. You can considerably notice your mental strength and your mental capabilities, the improvements over that six years. Yeah, span. 100%. 100%. I'm still like the same nervous, sometimes anxious guy that questions himself and and kind of, you know, like most of us have struggles with self-belief and, and kind of like confidence at times. But I think I've just learned the coping mechanisms to say to myself, you know, less of the negative talk, more of the I can and with everything that you go through, my accident is a, is a, I guess, like a big example. But use those things that you go through as, as an example to yourself that you're mm. stronger than you think. So that's why when people said to us, "Kiking from London to John O'Groats would be impossible," I was like, "Dude, I've 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 been through what I've been through, and I've taken heart and strength from that." So when we were doing the World Marathon Challenge or the Seven Marathon Seven Days Seven Continents that I did a month ago, as tough as that was, I was like. Dude, you're tougher than this. I'm doing it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is simple. This is A to B, 26.2 miles. Now, that might be an Antarctica in minus 20, <laughs> but, you know, you've been through worse. And we should all remind ourselves of that, I think. I mean, that's the perfect segue, because that's what we, I wanted to talk about next, the, the, the World Marathon Challenge. I mean, we've had Sally Orange on this podcast, who are, who is here today yeah, as well. I've yeah. had a chat to her and asking her about it, because I hadn't spoken to her since she's come back. And I was asking her about, um, she's like, yeah, yeah, Darren did an amazing job. Um, and just asking her about it. I mean, it's incredible. Um, you said Antarctica, then there's Madrid, Australia. Uh, what are the other places as well? We do. So day one, Antarctica. Day yeah. two, Cape Town. Day three, Perth. Day four, Dubai. Day five, Madrid. Day six, Fortaleza in Brazil. And then day seven, we rocked up in Miami. Miami. Which like was badass. Mad. So you've, you've crossed, <laughs> eight, yeah, yeah. You've crossed 18 time zones. Um, you've run 186 miles. You've done it in 168 hours. You've gone from minus 27, 60 mile an hour wind in Antarctica, which felt, which genuinely felt like a bodybuilder was pushing your face backwards, like as you're going really? into the headwind. And I was like leaning forward, straining to put as much power through my wheels as I could. And it was just like somebody was visibly like holding you back, like when you're a child and someone's like taking the mick because they're stronger and taller than you. Um, but then on the flip side of that, you get a moment where you turn with the wind behind you and you're like a, <laughs> dude, you're like a rocket kind of thing. Um, but that was day one. So I took five hours 50 on day one. And I remember like crossing the finish line, uh, the race director gave me the medal. And as he like lent, and I had to lean forward for him to put it over my neck. I remember just like collapsing into his chest because I was, I was knackered. Mm. And it's funny where your brain goes in that moment because I was so exhausted. I was relieved to finish. But then that like negative voice in the back of my head was like, this is only number one. You yeah. know, it's sort of saying like in t less than 24 hours, you're going to be in Cape Town. And you have to travel as well. Yes. That's, that's the added element of it. Bit, yeah. Because we all know that sleeping on a plane is no easy feat. And I think because you don't get your solid, I'm a, I'm a solid eight hours kind of guy, if not more. Um, and then because you're not getting your solid eight or six, six, you're getting like two here and then you wake up and it's like a belt buckle like in your ribs and you're kind of like, ah, and then you try and fall asleep again and then you wake up and you like crick your neck because you've fallen asleep in a really weird position. So every day you didn't get your eight. So every day you were a bit more sleep deprived, a bit more sleep deprived. You're doing the physical marathon. So uh, Cape Town was 30 degrees. Perth was 30 degrees. Dubai, 30 degrees. Um, <laughs> so you're, you're dealing with so many different things, the physical attrition of it, the mental attrition of it, the travelling, um, the food you're eating as well. You know, I you suppose know, it's makeshift. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's what you can find. So it's airport food. Yeah. Um, and there's a group of how many of you that are taking on this so challenge? There was meant to be 30, but then they combined two years' worth of athletes into one. So we had 42 in the end. So you had Sally was there. You had 80-year-old Dan. Oh, he was wow. He's an old cowboy, retired cowboy, um, who did it when he was 76. And he set the world record for the oldest man to ever 
do the WMC. And when he finished that, apparently he said in an interview, I'll be back in four years. And then four years later, who rocks up? Dan. And he oh, took about cool. seven and a half hours to do every marathon. But never complained, always smiling. You know, you'd be like, come on, Dan. He'd be like, thank you, Darren. Um, so there was him. There was a guy with stage four cancer who'd been given 12 months to live. Who was like, oh. this is what I want to do before I go. Did it. So you're surrounded, as well as yourself being an inspiring person with an inspiring story, there's loads of people person, around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you had a real mixed bag of like professional athlete who is like a Red Bull sponsored runner who gets paid to go and do these crazy things, doing every marathon in about two hours 45. <laughs> so there's him. Wow. Then there was Dan. And then you had everybody in the middle. You had this real mixed bag of people from all walks of life, all physical abilities, but everything everybody had one thing in common that was by the end of the week everybody had some niggle everybody was hobbling in a way or shoulder hurt my shoulders were like wanting to detach from my body to be I fair i can imagine i mean so, uh, sally said it that first marathon everyone was a bit nervous every you know it's not necessarily yeah. as but then after that you're in antarctica after the ice icebreaker of that it it was i can imagine probably quite that yeah. community feel of yeah we're all taking on this challenge yeah, i mean exactly. just for, for to give people an idea of how you're taking on this challenge, is that a hand hand bike? Yeah. So whatever I used had to work for everything. So I knew that rocking up in a wheelchair in Antarctica would just be a, a one-way ticket to like, you know, nothing. Um, and to be fair, I got off the plane in my wheelchair. I got about four foot away from the stairs and I was like, oh, I can't move. So I was really? like, I, I was, I'm waiting until the hand bike gets off. And it was like an adapted you know, ice bike tire, bike, hand bike. So it's built for like rugged conditions. And even that in Antarctica struggled. Really? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. There were sections of thicker snow and that front wheel would just spin, the back wheels would just spin in and, I, and you had to try and navigate your way to some thinner bit where the, the, the tires would start to grip again. So without that, that first marathon would have been impossible. You know, I mean, and, the, and the conditions, the conditions, we'd say minus 30. Minus 27. Um, and after seven hours, they were like, we have to go. Sally said this, yeah, that there yeah, was a the, bit of a cutoff on that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise so you'd be stuck there for three days. 12 people didn't finish. Oh no. Yeah, because the Russian pilots that have got a reputation for like flying in anything, um, even they were like, if we don't leave by, um, I can't remember what local time it was, but if we don't leave in seven hours time, we're here for three days. And you look around and there is nothing here. There's like a couple of like buildings. I don't want to be stuck with like, you know, these, when I say these people, but like these random, you know, like Russian yeah, scientists that, point, that yeah. are doing some, you just don't want to be stuck there for three no. days because the whole challenge would have been done. We'd have failed on day one. Yeah. Um, so they just had to cut people off. They had to say, sorry, but Damn. in the, in the interest of the, the wider group, the wider group. You, know, you have to have to go. What are you training? To, how how long were you training leading up to this? A year. Yeah. Like I'd said yes to it, and then the guy was like, "Brilliant." You know, what's your current like marathon time? And I was like, "I've never done one." And he thought <laughs> he he laughed and he was like, "Oh no, come on, seriously, what is it?" And I was like, "No, no, seriously, I've never I've never done a marathon. I'd never had an interest in it." But when you so dang- what made you what made you did you just look at it and go that he, he appro- so he approached oh, okay. me because they wanted someone, they wanted people with disabilities to do it because it then shows it's possible, it's accessible, it's inclusive. Um, so he approached me via a friend and I was like, I'm in. As soon as he said Antarctica, and as soon as he said less people have done this and climbed Everest, in my head I was like... That's an amazing... That's like a, that's, that's kind of what you were aspiring to do before. So uh, yeah, I was, I was in, I was like sold. And it, it, yeah, it was only once he was kind of doing his due diligence... He was like, you see ah. some training. Yeah, but I did. But so yeah. I said, to him, that's what I said to him. I was like, look, you've given me 11 months here. So leave it with me. And I'll, so I switched up all of my training. You know, I, I had to decide whether to go back to the Paralympic journey. Um, and after Kite for Heroes and, and rocking up at John O'Groats, I was like, this is, is, this is what I live for. Yeah. So breaking boundaries. Yeah. And, and, you know, all the best athletes, the people that make it, their sole focus is being the best at A, B, C, or D. And I knew that I couldn't give it 100% because I would be distracted by... And I'd have to turn yeah. these things away. 
the World Marathon Challenge I would have had to have turned down because I wouldn't have had the time. And look at the experience you've had yeah, now. Exactly. And then one thing leads to another and before you know it, you're midway through an ice cap in Iceland, you know, <laughs> doing something completely Why am I doing this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what was, what was your favourite one and what, which one was your least favourite one? Favourite one was Antarctica. Yeah. Even though it was the hardest, you had the, the novelty factor of looking around and you were like, I can't see anything. Like, really? Like what Preet would be saying, it's just white. Yeah. Um, so there was that like that factor of I'm in Antarctica, you know. So as hard as it was, it was always going to be special. The least favourite was Madrid because we were meant to be doing it around an F1 track, All and right. we were 24 hours delayed by this point because of yes. delays at airports. Mm. We had a 20 hour delay in Cape Town. Um, so the F1 track were like, look, we've got an event on, you can't do it. So they somehow found this random Spanish town that would shut the streets off for us. They put the cones out like a PE school day type thing. And they were like, you can do it. You do it here. But in order to do it there, we had to do 30 loops. 30 30. loops? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, 30 loops. And it was, I can't can't describe how (laughs) impressive it was that they they got that many hills into such a small (laughs) loop. And it was hilly and it had potholes. So from a point point of view, you go around a corner at like good speed because you've just come off a little hill then there's like a moon crater and it's like, you know, I'm trying to yeah, go yeah. around it. So at times I thought this bike is going to snap in half. Um, so Madrid, without a doubt. And then finishing, the finishing in Miami, what, where was your, where was your head at there? Um, my head was confused because we got there at half past midnight and <laughs> we were on the start line at half one in the morning. And my body was like, my body and my mind were like, no, we should be in bed. Like, what, what are we I mean, do, does you, do you know? Do you even take considerations at the time? Obviously, you have to kind of know about what time you're starting, what time you're finishing. But no, you, you kind of just live in this weird bubble. Weird bubble. You know, someone said to me the best advice is to try and stick to GMT, but that was all good and well. But you know, you needed to try and just sleep when you're on the plane. So that kind of became evening. Mm. So even though you were doing an evening marathon in Perth, that should be your daytime to your brain. Um, anyway, so we finished at Miami. I finished at half three in the morning and the only people that were out were kind of people that because we did it along like where all the clubs were on south beach <laughs> so every now and then you'd be like woo from like some random drunk american who's on the sideline um finished at half three in the morning and i was just relieved i was just like thank like i was so when i took the challenge on 11 months earlier i was like there's a massive risk of failure here but sometimes in life you just gotta, gotta go for it gotta go for it and it, like if i'd failed for whatever reason as long as I knew that I'd, I'd sort of done myself proud, then you can walk away head held high, learn something from it. Kind you of probably thing. would have taken it on again. I don't know. <laughs> Do you not think? I don't know. I, if someone had said, we'll give you a free space for next year, I'd be like, I'm all right. But maybe in a few years' time, like I'll be like, I'll roast into glasses of looking back and thinking... Yeah, something on. else that I could do there and I mean these challenges are amazing um, but a massive part of what you, of what you do is you're here speaking and you, you, you want to portray a, a message and, and talk to people and mm. what is that message that you, you really want to get across to the listeners I think for me you know and for all and for all of us we all go through adversity in life that's one thing that we share in common if not one of many things we share in common but we do but people sometimes make the mistake of looking at me and because it's an easy thing to look like Physically, you can see the wheelchair. It's, it's a visible, it's a visible sign of adversity, and people make the mistake of saying or, or demeaning themselves, saying, "Well, you've been through worse, so I shouldn't complain." And I, was, I always try to say, to people, no, just because mine is visible and yours isn't, or because you perceive yours as less, less of a challenge than mine, the greatest challenge I've faced is the same as the greatest challenge that you faced. To, to both, to both of us, they're they're tough, they're hard. Um. But I think what I've learned through an experience I wouldn't have chosen, but I wouldn't change, I wouldn't go back and change anything now, is that, you know, adversity is there to either make us or break us. And ultimately, the thing that is going to decide which of those two it is, is us. You know, so it is as stupid as when you're wondering what life's going to look like, you go and buy that bloody kayak because you make that commitment to yourself. And when I was on that rock, that cliff face that day, um, waiting to be evac'd by the, the helicopter, I didn't feel very brave or courageous. Far from it. I felt very weak and vulnerable. But I said to myself, look, whatever happens, just don't give up. Like, whatever this, wherever this goes, just don't bloody give up. And I think that is something I've remembered every day since. 
and has been the thing that has just that decided for me whether it was going to make or break. That, so, I mean, it's a, amazing that message and the first half of what uh, you were saying in that is something that I we had Johnny Peacock on this podcast um, when he spoke at the National Running Show a year and a half ago, and he said a very similar thing to me about. He said he gets frustrated sometimes when people see a disability and say uh, that there's a different subsection of person. He goes, no, I just have, just because you can see what I've had to overcome or see this, it's no different to, you know, what you've had to go through. It's just a slightly different version. I've just had to come over this adversity. Your adversity might be something in a different form, be it mental or physical. And almost in a very parallel way of what you've just said there. And it's something that... I think a lot of people don't consider. Yeah. It goes to show it's true though. He said it and I've said it. I don't know him. He doesn't know me, but we've both kind of like come to that conclusion. Shows that it's true. Shows that it's very like poignant. I just wanted to ask before we ended how important humor is in your life. Cause you, you like have a, a laugh and a joke mm-hmm. and how big an impact has that pay, played or an important role has that played in the past six years? Mm, massive. There's a cheerfulness in the face of adversity. And you've got to be able to laugh at like some of the situations I've got myself into, you know, not through my own choice, but silly things that have happened. You know, you have to learn to laugh at them because like, you know, you know, what do you do? You either laugh or you cry. And sometimes, yeah, you need to cry. Sometimes crying is the right thing to do. But sometimes, you know, when you're on a night out, you know, so, so here's one example. I was a year out of hospital. I was single. I was like wondering what, you know, what dating in a wheelchair was going to be like kind of thing. Um, and I'm on a date with this girl and um, we're going into a pub. There's a step up into the pub and she offers, like, she's like, do you want a hand getting in? And like the, the kind of like the, the bloke in me with pride high couldn't, like, I didn't want to show her I needed help. I wanted to show her I was a strong, independent bloke. So I was like, no, 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 don't worry. I've got this. So I go to like bump up this step and get it tragically wrong I flip out, wheelchair spins from underneath me, like pretty much hits the, the pub door. I fall backwards. And what I didn't see on the way in was that for some reason, this particular country pub had a horse poo, oh, like, no. a pat, like a horse poo pad. Yeah. It had been like, like driven over a few times. So it was flat. It wasn't like stick. That's probably why I didn't see it. Yeah. Um, and as I flipped out and went backwards, I landed back first, elbow first into this pile of poo. And I've just done it on this date with this girl that I really like, made a complete tear out of myself. And I didn't even think about how to respond. I just burst out into laughter. And she then started to laugh because she knew that it was okay to laugh with me. Yeah. And that, you know, and that girl is now my fiance and we're getting married this year. Wow. And she always talks about that moment because she said that it was the moment that she knew that, you know, um dating someone with a disability wasn't gonna be um serious all the time and oh my god and like she said like she was worried when she saw me fall but she said it was just the humor element and and that is just one of so many examples of even in our relationship little like things that we've got ourselves into like pickles we've got ourselves into that actually bring you closer together as a couple i can i can imagine that that's that's an amazing story and and thank you so much for for talking through all these these adventures and and these exciting things and not letting uh, an occasion of what happened to you define how you're going to be and how you're going to live your life for the rest uh, for for as long as you're going and I just wanted to ask I mean you've kind of given an idea of what's next as, as well with what you've been speaking about but are there any of the other that you can talk about uh, itches that you you want to scratch anything that you you're looking at kind of like so not in my words someone else said it but the three the two that I'm doing Iceland with this, you know, big world first expedition by a disabled team. We've not even done that. And we were in, we were in training together one day and they both like, they were like, this is the test. And I was like, what? And they were like, if we can do this, what's to stop us doing the South pole. And I, I, I think my face, just like yours, my face went burst into this smile. I was like, yes, boys. Yes. Kind of thing. So let's get through this. Let's prove the concept going to be tough mm. um but you know it's laying that kind of foundation for something bigger in the future um and i don't think adventures need to get bigger and more stupid and more dangerous um because it's the everyday adventures that 
you know, you're not always going to be at the blooming South Pole or doing a massive adventure because you're going to spend the majority of your life where you live. And it's about finding those kind of adventures and things. I'm almost happiest when I'm out with my colleague. We're in a field next to my house and I'm just throwing the ball for him. Sun's out, looking at the view. And it's nothing special. It's nothing Instagrammable, really. But it's probably when I'm happiest. It's those small moments, that small sense of outside an adventure. I absolutely love that. Darren, thank you so much for, yes, for coming onto the podcast. There's just one thing I need from you. And that's a piece of advice for me to pass along to a guest coming on in the near future. Cool. The whole time we've been doing this podcast, the back of my head has been like on autopilot trying to think of this. Um, <laughs> but I think I said, I, th- I said it earlier, like how we should use our previous experiences in life and adversity and challenges as proof to ourselves that we're stronger and more capable or more resilient than we think. So advice to the next person who's probably more impressive than I am would be, you know, the next time they're facing that tough moment, just remember to look back at everything they've already come through and say to themselves, I bloody got it kind of thing. Darren, I look forward to passing that on. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Outside and Active podcast with Darren. A really, really fascinating, funny, but also heartwarming conversation about the struggles that Darren went through in 2016, his rehab, the funny, funny kayak story, and then some of the incredible challenges that he's gone on to complete in the subsequent years. A really, really lovely conversation from a really, really lovely man. Don't forget to check out this week's sponsor, Goat Drinks, at goatdrinks.co.uk. All of their functional, funky energy drinks. Go and support them. They're supporting us. We just want to return the favour. And as I said at the beginning of the podcast, if you want to forward this on to someone who you think would enjoy it just as much as you, then please do so. Let's grow this outside and active community. And also, if this is the first time you're listening, then we have a whole back catalogue of videos and audio podcasts that you can listen to on our website, outsideandactive.com. And another one of those will be coming this time next week when we'll be speaking to another interesting and inspirational guest. So until that time, enjoy the outdoors.